Welcome to Medicare for All Explained. This podcast will enlighten our listeners and dispel the distortions that surround Medicare for All. Medicare for All Explained is produced in collaboration with Physicians for a National Health Program and is hosted and produced by Joe Sparks. I'm your host, Joe Sparks. This is Episode 48, COVID and Racial Inequities. My guest, Susan Rogers, MD, is the president of Physicians for a National Health Program. She is recently retired, but continues helping people as a volunteer attending hospitalists and internists at the John H. Stroger Jr. Hospital of Cook County, Illinois. She is an assistant professor of medicine at Rush University and previously was the co-director of medical student programs for the Department of Medicine at Stroger Hospital. She has received numerous teaching awards from Stroger Hospital and Rush University. Dr. Rogers is a member and fellow of the American College of Physicians, a member of the Society of General Internal Medicine, and the National Medical Association. Dr. Susan Rogers, welcome back to Medicare for All Explained. Thanks so much for inviting me back. Well, much has happened since mid-February when you were on Medicare for All Explained. And I want to start with congratulations on becoming president of Physicians for a National Health Program. Well, thank you very much. It'll be an exciting two years. (laughs) And, of course, since you were last on the show, Joe Biden was elected president. And I'm sure he'll be glad to catch up with you on January 20th when he becomes president. (laughs) I look forward to his call. (laughs) But I'd like to start with the pandemic. So the last time we talked, we talked about racial inequities in healthcare. And what has COVID made apparent about racial inequities in our healthcare system? Well, one of the things that COVID has made very apparent is the it's just amplified the intensity and severity of the inequities that exist. I think for a lot of people, these inequities were invisible. They they didn't impact their lives necessarily. They were not visible to them. But now they are just clearly there on the news every day in the newspaper stories. And it's made these inequities much more obvious, much more visible. And they can't be ignored anymore. Along those lines, There have been claims that Blacks and Hispanics are more susceptible to COVID, and that has caused them to be hospitalized more and have a higher fatality rate, but that is not the case, is it? Not at all. One of the ways I like to put it is it's racism, not race. And just because someone is a minority or an immigrant or a person of color, that in itself doesn't put them at higher risk. It's the racism in this uh, and the structural racism in this country that puts them at higher risk. Um, it's interesting because 
Back in 1899, W.B. Du Bois wrote a book called The Philadelphia Negro. And in this book, he looked at why he asked himself the question, why is it that the black people who are living in Philadelphia have a much more severe impact from tuberculosis, that it causes more death, it causes more sickness and dysfunction. And so what he did back in 1899 was he went door to door, he looked at things, he asked questions, and what he came up with was that it was the socioeconomics and the environment that black people lived that created this disproportionate, intense poor outcomes from tuberculosis with black people who live there. So it was not even then he proved that it was nothing genetic. It was nothing innate about black people. It was the environment in which they live that caused them to have worse outcomes from tuberculosis. So here we are over a hundred years later asking the same question. What is it about black people? What is it about immigrants? What is it about people of color that make them have worse outcomes from this pandemic? And it's the structure here. It's the inequities that were built into the structure of this country that cause those differences in outcomes. The Genome Project has shown that there is no genetic difference. So there's nothing innate about the person that predisposes them but it's the environments in which they are forced to live. It's the poverty, it's the lack of health services, it's the lack of grocery stores in their neighborhoods and the ability to buy healthy foods. It's a whole lot of factors, but it has nothing to do with the genetics of the person. One thing that I think emphasizes that point is when it comes to transplants, there are cases when a white person and a black person are the best match once you get past family. And I think that just emphasizes how little difference there is genetically between races. Exactly. In fact, there's more differences within a group than between one group and another group. So the whole idea that we are all so different really isn't true. There's, you know, similarities. The differences between groups is is minimal. We're all 99.9% alike. Now, there's ethnic differences, and this is different than race. This has to do with the specific lines and the, the lineage of where people, where their genetic pool comes from. But generally, we're all so similar that race has nothing to do with it. We have to remember, too, that race is a social construct. Race was created so that we could define who could be a slave and who could not be, and who could own a slave. So it had nothing to do with differences, but making that difference allowed one group to become dominant, meaning the white people in this country who came in here and settled this country and took it from the Native Americans who were already here, and it gave them power over another group by just saying that they were inferior. And they did things to sort of to prove that to themselves, to justify it to themselves that they were entitled to this. But there isn't any, there's no scientific basis for the term race. And actually, if you go to Africa, people don't consider themselves black. 
they consider themselves Nigerian or they're Somalian or they're South African. They're from whatever country or whatever tribe they're from. Black has nothing to do with who they are other than their skins are dark. But And it's the same in Europe. Before this country was settled, people were Italian, people were English. Whatever country they were from, that was what they, what they were. They weren't white until they came here. And then it was to their benefit because that was the white supremacist culture that this country was built on. So genetics has nothing to do with how the culture has evolved on how one group has maintained dominance and claimed superiority and why they look at another group as being inferior. There's no science to this at all. Well, we talked about this kind of COVID from the societal level and how it affects people, but um, what has COVID made apparent about our healthcare system in general, especially when it comes to race? Well, one of the things that when you have a structure that is profit-driven and it is based on money and making money, that is going to disenfranchise the group that does not have those assets. And by doing so, if you look at uh, poor communities that where there are no health care services or very minimal, the education is poor, the environment is dangerous, it doesn't have transportation, it doesn't have the same sanitation, all the things you look at as a positive aspect to a neighborhood have been purposely disenfranchised and not been supported by the government in this country's and minority neighborhoods. And this started back, you know, right after uh, Reconstruction ended and all the policies that condone and allowed segregation to persist. And so the segregation has created this intense poverty, it has disenfranchised Black people from being allowed to uh, accumulate wealth because they could not own buy a house because of redlining and the inability to get mortgages. We were not allowed to get jobs. We could not aspire in those jobs to positions where you could be in charge and further make money. So that it has created a social environment where a lot of services that need to be provided have never been there. So if you look at, even now with COVID, if you look at poor communities, a lot of these hospitals don't even have intensive care beds. Whereas if you look at wealthier communities, almost all of those hospitals have intensive care beds. So even the basic things that communities need to be able to handle this pandemic don't exist in poor Black communities. If you look at immigrants in this country, many of whom may be illegal, but those end up having to work in frontline jobs and they are essential workers. So they are put in an environment that places them at higher risk. The other thing that happens too in these communities is that the housing is what we call crowded. People live in homes that are multi-generational, they have more people living in the home than they have rooms, so there's no way you can social distance from each other. So this is the environment that people have been forced to live in, which allows for the virus to be spread 
among the people who live there. So this is the environment that's been created that COVID has allowed to just flourish in. People are not allowed to, to social distance. And when you are frontline workers, you don't have a choice about whether to go to work or not. If you don't go to work, you become homeless and hungry. So you really don't have a choice about this. So the disadvantage that minorities are put in because of the, the structural racism in this country has been like a, a Petri dish that allowed COVID to flourish. It wasn't because of the people themselves. It was the environment. And even if we don't totally change the environment, how do you think Medicare for All would help in terms of getting people medical care? Well, if we had Medicare for All and we would thus change the financing of health care, there's a way that then we could make it equitable for everyone because it wouldn't be based on your ability to pay. If we look at people who do not have insurance, who do not have employer-based insurance, right now it's only about 60% of the country who has employer-based insurance now. That's even less than before because now those numbers are going down because of the lack of employment and the loss of jobs because of COVID. So that this whole coupling of employment to health insurance is so fragile and it can't be assumed to persist. It's not a relationship that we can always depend on to provide us insurance. A single-payer system, which would cover everyone and allow us all to have access, would clearly address some of these inequities that COVID has created. One of the things, too, is that if we could provide institutions such as hospitals, clinics, pharmacies, where they are needed versus where they make a profit, it would help negate some of these inequities that persist and allow everyone access to that care. The other thing, too, is that these hospitals in some neighborhoods have been overburdened by COVID patients. They cannot withstand the surge. And because a lot of these patients may have Medicaid, other hospitals will not accept those transfers. So there's nowhere for those patients to go. Other hospitals who are doing quite well, who have empty beds, who have the resources to take care of them, are not accepting those transfers. And this is, um, this is criminal. By law, they are not required to do that. The only thing they are required to do is to see someone who comes through their emergency room. But unless you get taken to their emergency room, they are not required to take care of you. So this overburdens some hospitals and other hospitals are able to cope. And even when we look at the CARES Act, which was done to help provide relief during the pandemic, one of the things that the CARES Act is it gave hospitals money based on their previous revenue. So, of course, wealthier hospitals who had more patients with private insurance, who did more lucrative procedures and made money, they got more money. Whereas a hospital in a poor community where most of their patients were Medicaid or Medicare did not have the revenue that these other wealthier institutions had, and they got less money from CARES Act, the exact opposite of what should have been done. 
So what has happened is this whole idea of giving more to those who already have it and less to those who need it has been perpetuated. It's part of this culture. There's this this sense that we should not be equitable in how we help people. And that's a big, big problem, not just in healthcare, but in the way we look at how we help communities. It's not being done. And the CARES Act has followed that culture. And unfortunately, it has disproportionately helped those who were already able to handle the pandemic, and it hasn't helped those who needed more help. I think that's an important point, that sometimes we allocate resources not based on need, but just based on who's already well off, instead of really looking at who needs it and putting the most resources where they are needed. Exactly. And that's one of the mantras of the single-payer movement, is that once you take the profit motive out, then you can place your resources where they're needed and not where they can make money. Because that that's where it takes on an immoral culture within itself, in that you're not driven to provide care, you're driven to make money which is kind of antithetical to why most people in healthcare went into healthcare. Although I'm not saying that the fact that people wanted to make money was not a good thing. We all make our choices. But the whole point is that everybody should be entitled to healthcare. And the way our current system is, it doesn't make that entitlement equitable. That's for sure. I'd like to know, Do you think there are some aspects of the single-payer Medicare for All system that would have reduced the death toll from COVID or helped people get medical care during the pandemic that may not be obvious? Well, I think clearly if people had Medicare for All, they would have been not as reluctant to seek health care when they became ill because people were concerned about the bills that would come up, even though it was said that all COVID care would be taken care of, people were still concerned about the bills. And it also turned away a lot of people who could not afford the care for other health conditions that weren't directly related to COVID issues. But so it's it has decreased the sense of urgency for people to seek care because of these bills. And one of the things that has happened, too, that's been interesting is that the overtreatment and what we call low-value care has actually decreased in this country since COVID, which is actually a good thing. Because we have a for-profit system, a lot of things are done that make money but actually do not necessarily improve health or provide care that is urgently needed. And then one of the things, too, is that providing care that isn't necessarily needed or doing tests, ordering things, it also can create a whole cascade of further issues that were totally unnecessary that were brought on by this initial unnecessary step. So it's interesting that that has actually been cut down by the reluctance of people to seek care for reasons that aren't exactly necessary or that were necessarily putting people in a position where they felt they had to address this now. 
So that's about the one good thing that came from COVID is that this over treatment and unnecessary care, the low value care has decreased with the pandemic, but it has also inhibited access to care for other necessary things. COVID hasn't prevented heart attacks. It hasn't prevented strokes. It hasn't prevented uncontrolled diabetes and the complications that come from that. So there's other health issues that unfortunately people haven't been able to access because of COVID and especially in poor neighborhoods, hospitals were overwhelmed with those patients and there was no way to address these other health issues that are still occurring. I'd like to ask another question. Of course, nursing homes were hit very hard by COVID and at least initially that caused many of the fatalities from COVID. Do you think that a Medicare for All system would have helped reduce the fatalities in nursing homes? You know, that's a that's a good question because one of the things about um, in this country is that we really don't provide for long-term care. And by long-term care, one of the, the things that provide that is nursing home care. And nursing home care isn't just for old, frail people in their last days or years. It also impacts people who may need transient care for an extended period of time from an injury or a trauma. There's going to be a lot of people from COVID who are still going to be impacted by the disease that will still need long-term care. There's people who have to learn how to walk again. There's people who may have significant issues that they will need to learn how to address and they will need long-term care. So one of the things by not providing this even before COVID, people were put into nursing homes because there was nowhere else for them to access this care. And that's one of the big differences between the United States and other countries with a universal health care system is that they provide this care through other social services. So they spend more money on social services supporting people at home, whereas we don't do that. We just put them in a nursing home and pay a minimum amount of money. The workers there are paid a minimum amount of money. They're understaffed. So it's not a good environment, even in the best of conditions. So if we had access and we had a way to pay for long-term care, which it would be paid for under single payer, a lot of patients would have been able to remain at home and then would not be exposed to an environment that was so crucial in spreading COVID. And people who may have been able to go home after recovering from COVID and had supportive care there versus going into a nursing home. So long-term care, which we all know has been a hotspot for transmitting COVID, not just to the people who live there, but to the people who work there. And then the people who work there brought that back home to their families because those people were essential workers who often lived in crowded homes, took public transportation to get to their job. It's a really domino effect of the effect of institutions like this. And this could have been all avoided if we did what other countries with universal health care do, and that is provide more social services to provide access to care at home rather than institutionalizing patients. We touched on this a little bit, but one of the things I thought that uh, 
the pandemic would make people more aware of the need to separate employment with health insurance. And I haven't seen as much of that as I thought. Do you agree with that assessment? And if you agree, why do you think there hasn't been more of a push now to separate employment from health insurance. You know, I agree with you. It is amazing how looking at the number of people who are now have become unemployed because of COVID, who have no source of income, who have no insurance now, who are unable to pay for basic things such as food and housing now. Why single payer would not seem to make perfect sense to everyone. And I don't really have a great answer for that. I think a lot of it is emotional, that people are tied to this this emotional connection to private insurance because we have just been told it's the propaganda from the health insurance company that this is the only way to do it, that we will give you choice, that you need this in order to have care. And so these emotions get in the way of you really taking a good look at how it is done elsewhere. One of the things this country has done is it's just given us this concept that we are the best in the world in everything, including healthcare, and that why would we want what other countries do when we're already doing it the best way? And people have fallen for that rather than objectively looking at their environment and saying, this doesn't work. And I think we have to find a way to get people to turn off their emotions and to look at this sensibly. And one of the similarities I see is I look at people who do behaviors that they know are bad, but they continue to do it because, well, I like doing this, whether it's smoking, It's whatever, you know, people continue to do things for emotional reasons, even though intellectually and sensibly they know that it's the wrong thing to do. And so I think the propaganda and all that's been hyped out by private insurance, by the government telling you that this will not work, that people just choose to believe that there's an emotional connection. And then a lot of people who are working, it's like a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. They don't want to lose what they have and risk it for something that they're they're not 100% sure that it's better. And that's why even people who are working still cling to this concept of coupling employment to private health insurance rather than going for um, single payer. Yeah, it's a big problem because talking to people who have traveled to other countries, people who live in other countries who come to visit here, they're just amazed. They don't get it. And a friend of mine wrote in an email, well, you know that single payer is just so complicated, and that's why only 32 out of 33 industrialized countries have done it, which <laughs> when you think about it, It's very ironic. Well, the other thing, there was a report from the Commonwealth Fund that came out in August, and it was a survey, and 
The survey was done mostly before the pandemic, but what they found is in the 19 to 64-year-old population, 43% of that population was either underinsured or uninsured. And I don't know about you, but I sure wouldn't want to buy a product that failed 43% of the time, and that's what I think those statistics show. And I don't have an answer, but it just amazes me that we keep a system that fails 43% of the time. I mean, to me, that's just ridiculous. I know. It makes no sense. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that many people don't understand that they are underinsured. And when we use that term underinsured, it means that you may end up paying up to 5 to 10% of your income for medical expenses. And I think that people don't understand how the deductible plays out and that you have to pay sometimes several thousand dollars before your insurance even kicks in. And I think a lot of people don't grasp that concept. And it's not like you pay it once, even if you continue at that job, you pay it every single year. So it's not something you can, it's not a debt you can pay off and then you're done with it. It's a recurrent expense. And I think people don't see that. People who are uninsured know that they don't have insurance, but they're just hoping that everything will be okay. Now they sell these plans that like cover catastrophic incidents, but the coverage is so minimal. And I think people just don't understand how insurance really works. It's difficult to tell what you're covered for. So you don't realize you're underinsured until you have to use your insurance. And we have to keep in mind that out of all the people who use the healthcare industry, 20% of the population uses over 80% of all the healthcare. So there's a smaller group that uses most of the healthcare that's delivered in this country. Now that has changed since COVID, there's no question. But that means that the majority of this country are not people who regularly use their insurance. It may be one or two times for something. You cut yourself, you need some stitches. You had an acute infection, you had to go and get this taken care of. But even people who have chronic conditions don't necessarily address those needs, so they don't use the their insurance. So it's a it's it's mind boggling. I don't get it either, really, why people can't see that there's there is a solution out there. And again, this emotional attachment to this employer insurance people still are connected to. I want to shift gears a bit. And in the initial part of the program, I mentioned Joe Biden becoming our next president, and he doesn't support Medicare for All. What do you think needs to be done to make Medicare for All a reality in this country? Well, I think it's very important for people to really push their own representatives to push for this. There are bills in both the Senate and the House that hopefully will be reintroduced with the new Congress in January that are supportive of Medicare for all. And we just need to get more people, more representatives supportive of this. I think one of the biggest obstacles is 
the the lobbying efforts and the money to congressional campaign funds from these industries to promote their own self-interest. And so because campaigns have become so so phenomenally expensive, there's a lot of representatives who are dependent on these monies to continue in their job. And so they succumb to this. And I think one of the things that I have found is that there are many, especially minority uh, representatives, who come from districts that do not have wealthy populations. And many of them who you would think would support Medicare for all because their constituency is the group that would benefit the most. However, it's also their constituency who isn't in a financial situation to be able to donate to those campaigns in a way that they can continue to get elected. So it's almost a catch-22. And I think what we need to do is to get the lobbyists and all of this out of Washington and if we could change campaign reform, but we still need to focus on our representatives so that they can understand that this is what their constituents want. And that's true. I mean, the studies show that the majority of people in this country support Medicare for all. So there are enough constituents to be able to push representatives to go for this. We just have to be a little bit more vocal and intense in our efforts to convince our legislators to do this. Now, why Biden isn't supporting it, I don't know if it is a reflection of his support for Obamacare when he was uh, Obama's vice president and he doesn't want to go back against that and not support that now. I'm not sure because he's been pretty adamant about wanting to continue the Affordable Care Act and build up on that rather than to negate that and let's build uh, a single payer for all system here. Yes, I'm not sure either because Biden does support the concept of universal health care. And to me, it seems that's opposed given our current system. Exactly. Um, as long as we have any sort of financial barrier, no matter how minimal it is, it's a barrier to universal health care. There's no way around it. Whether the barrier was two cents, there's a lot of people in this country who do not have those two pennies to be able to pay. I think that's an important and often overlooked point, especially by policymakers, because they can't sometimes understand that people just may not have the money to pay for things. Right. And it's all relative about what is a lot of money, you know? Yes. And what may seem as a minimal copay is far out of reach for many, many people who live here. Yeah, some people don't understand that $10 can be a struggle for some people. Can exactly. Make exactly. Before we end, is there anything that you would like to add? I think that we really need to take a hard look at how we look at equity in this country and that I think that one of the things that has become so blatantly clear in the last four years is how the small group at the top, the wealthiest group, has getting more and more and more. 
And it's not just minorities who aren't getting things. Uh, It's not that immigrants or other people of color aren't getting things. It's more and more people who are, quote, doing the things that they've always done and have been okay with are now not getting those things. And unless we can see ourselves as all in the same boat, which is going to be very difficult in this country that is based on white supremacy. But that's going to be, that's going to have to be addressed if we are ever going to get the numbers and the strength and the power to go against this 0.1% that has taken everything. And I know that when I was in medical school, the one thing I remember from parasitology (laughs) is that a good parasite never kills its host. And what's happening now is this 1% is killing the host. We are supporting them. And we can't continue to do that. And I think people have to realize that there's only so much that they're able to take from everybody. And they're pretty much maxed out, I think. And so we have to really become a more of a cohesive group that can finally say that we are all entitled to more so that we can change the way things are. And healthcare has to be a major part of this because if we're not healthy, we're not going to function well. I strongly second that. Dr. Rogers, thank you so much for being on Medicare for All Explained. Thank you so much. I totally enjoyed this. You have been listening to Medicare for All Explained. Information about this podcast can be found at our website, medicareforallexplained.org. The music for this show is Super Bubbly by Jesse Spillane. The logo was created by Lily Sparks. Thank you for listening.